The San Diego Padres seem to at least be entertaining the idea of trading Juan Soto. And this would probably be the best time for the Orioles to acquire a star like that. But would they even be interested in making an offer? We'll answer that question more coming up on another mailbag episode of the Locked On Orioles podcast. You are Locked On Orioles, your daily Baltimore Orioles podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hey there, Orioles fans. Today is Tuesday, November 14th, 2023, and welcome back in to the Locked On Orioles podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. As always, I'm your host, Connor Newcomb. And coming up on today's episode, we're opening up the mailbag once again. Yes, I did a mailbag episode yesterday for a usual off-season mailbag Monday, but I got so many good questions from you, the listeners, that decided to open up the mailbag once again. So back-to-back mailbags, Little Mailbag Tuesday here on the podcast today. We're going to get to some questions like what extensions could look like for some Orioles players. Talk about Juan Soto, and if the O's could go after him. What's happening with the current lease at Oriole Park? We'll talk about Heston Kerstad and Adley Rutschman, and much, much more coming up on this mailbag episode of the Locked On Orioles podcast, which is brought to you by FanDuel. Make every moment more. Right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 money line bet. That's $150 just if your team wins. So visit FanDuel.com slash locked on to get started today. So we got nine questions, all from you, the listeners, coming up on the mailbag today. If you submitted a mailbag question, didn't hear it answered either yesterday or today, don't worry. Going to be doing mailbag Mondays throughout the offseason and potentially some mailbag Tuesdays as well. So keep the questions coming in. You can send them to us. Email at LockedOnOrioles at gmail.com, I should say, at LockedOnOrioles on Twitter. And leave them in the YouTube comments right here as well. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to the Locked on Orioles YouTube page. Jump right into it. First question of the day comes from Brady on Twitter. This was a tough one to start things off with. Brady says, you can only extend two of the following players. Which ones do you extend? Gunnar Henderson, Adley Rutschman, Grayson Rodriguez, Kyle Bradish, Jackson Holiday, and D.L. Hall. For me, it took a little bit of thinking. But my answers would be, if I could only extend two, would be Gunnar Henderson and Adley Rutschman. These two guys are just generational talents, I think. Henderson's going to win Rookie of the Year, looks in line to win an MVP at some point. And Adley is going to be a perennial all-star, and I think will spend a good amount of his career as the best catcher in baseball when you combine defensively and offensively as well. You don't find a lot of prospects like these two guys. And the fact that the Orioles got them both in the same draft, the first draft, with Mike Elias and crew, is pretty remarkable. But these two guys, if you could extend for, I don't know, six, seven more years past the time that they would become free agents, would be truly incredible to do. Yes, I think Grayson Rodriguez and Kyle Bradish will be great. D.L. Hall, at the very least, could be a really, really lockdown reliever. But pitchers get hurt more often. Pitchers are a little more volatile than hitters at times. And for Jackson Holiday, he could be better. There's a situation where Holiday is better than both Gunner and Adley. But... We've seen him play only a little bit of AAA and no Major League Baseball. He is still much more, of course, of a question mark than Gunnar or Adley is. So I'm going with you t- those two if I could only extend two of them. Second question comes from Gerard on Twitter who asks, Would the Orioles consider trading for Juan Soto considering even if they don't extend him after the year, they could give him the qualifying offer and receive a draft pick next offseason? 
it is a good point from Gerard because if you do trade for players at the trade deadline, you cannot offer them a qualifying offer at the end of the season. But as long as you have a player from opening day till the end of the year and he becomes a free agent, you can offer him the qualifying offer. It's about a one-year, $20 million deal. If the player accepts it, you get them for one more year and $20 million. If they decline it, you get the third highest draft pick from the team that signs him. So theoretically, you could get right around a second-round pick if you didn't bring back Juan Soto. And, you know, the Padres right now are trying to cut a little bit of payroll, and Soto's a free agent after 2024, and I don't think the Padres plan on re-signing him to a long-term extension, which means they are kind of kicking the rocks, kicking the tires on maybe, maybe trading Juan Soto this offseason. Now, you could make the argument that if the Orioles were ever going to go get a player of his prestige, his star level, from outside the organization, right? Adley, Holiday, Gunnar Henderson, others could be that good, but those were drafted and developed by the O's. It costs a lot more to go get those kind of players from other teams. This could be the time, right? You have a Juan Soto who is looking to be dealt. You have the prospects to go get him, and he's got one year left, which makes him less expensive in that trade. Now, he's in his final year of arbitration, obviously, MLB Trade Rumors projects for Soto to make $33 million in arbitration for 2024. The Orioles are not paying anyone $33 million next year. John Angelos has told us that much. I mean, I don't think they would pay anyone $23 million for next year, let alone $33 million. So here's the thing. The Orioles should be in the market of trying to make a trade for Juan Soto, right? They have plenty of payroll flexibility, theoretically, and it would only be for one year. We know they're not extending him, but wouldn't cost as much as it cost a couple years ago for the Padres to get two and a half years of Soto when they got him from the Nationals. Less years of control, less he costs in a trade, and the Orioles have the prospects to get it. But on the flip side, the O's aren't paying $33 million. So if they got the Padres to eat some of that money, say they got the Padres to eat some of the money, the Orioles paid $20 million and the Padres paid $13 million of Soto's contract next year. Then the Padres are asking for more prospects, and it probably goes beyond what the O's want to give up. So no, I don't think the Orioles are going to get him, but in theory, yes, this would be the time to go get a player that good from outside your organization. Third question of the day comes from Texas Orioles on Twitter, who asks, how much emphasis does Mike Elias put on clubhouse chemistry? This is a tough question to answer in total, but from things I have heard, about Mike Elias, about the way he selects players, about the way he puts together a team. It's not like he's taking vibes over someone's production or how cost-controlled they are. That is not the case. But among the GMs that are kind of cut from Elias's cloth, right, the standard 40 to 50s white man from an Ivy League school who has taken over baseball front offices over the last 15 years or so, especially the ones that are heavily into the data and analytics side of Major League Baseball, he seems to be the one that is still somewhat enamored with clubhouse chemistry. And I've heard this from multiple people who are more connected with the actual clubhouse and the front office and the team, that Elias does care about it a little bit. Like, he is not just looking at the spreadsheet when he's bringing these guys in. He cares about the culture they cultivate. And Texas Orioles talked about this in kind of a longer question when he asked it, when they asked it was... Like, it kind of seems like he does care because the Orioles have put together such a great clubhouse culture. And a lot of that is because the team is so young. It's so many homegrown guys who have come up together 
through the minor league system. That easily cultivates a better culture at the major league level. But the veterans, not that they've spent a lot on them, but the veterans the O's have brought in have fit in well. I mean, I think about guys like Kyle Gibson, like Robinson Trinos, like Aaron Hicks. I mean, those guys have been unbelievable leaders in the Orioles clubhouse and have been perfect fits. Did Robinson Trinos really contribute much on the field? No, but Gibson and Hicks did as well. While they weren't the best players on the Orioles, they contributed and they were fantastic in the clubhouse. And again, I've heard from multiple people that Elias does somewhat care about what goes on in that clubhouse. And it also, from what I've heard, Sigmidel is more of like the straight-up data numbers guy. That's all he's going to look at. And Mike seems, and, and Eve Rosenbaum as well, to balance him out with the, we need to consider other things besides just his data on a sheet. And I think that's how this front office has come together to work so far. Now, it would be nice, right, if there was more money floating around and maybe they wouldn't have to rely on, okay, let's get the $10 million guy that has the good vibes instead of we can get the $20 million guy that has okay vibes and he can still really help our team. But that is where the Orioles are at right now. And it does really seem like Elias, yeah, it's not the number one thing, right? He's not building a team off of clubhouse chemistry and vibes, but he does seem to care about it a little bit. And I think that has honestly helped this organization over the last couple of years. We got six more questions to get to here on a mailbag episode. Three more are coming up after the break. One talking about Adley hitting leadoff last year and if that will continue for the Orioles. One about the lease. Yeah, many questions coming up about that. The deadline coming up here pretty soon. And then one about the kind of timing of the MLB offseason and why it's so quiet, even though trades and free agency have been open for about a week at this point. But first... This episode of the Locked On Orioles podcast is brought to you by FanDuel. Now, we are in pretty good sports time, right? Including the NFL. And yeah, we're still maybe getting over a really disheartening Ravens loss from Sunday. But they're playing well. And overall, at least. And you can score early this NFL season with FanDuel. America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 money line bet. That's 150 bucks if your team wins. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there is no better time to get in on the action. The app is so easy to use. There's a wide range of betting options, including spreads, player props, over-unders, and more. So visit FanDuel.com slash locked on and kick off the NFL season with FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. So we're back here on another mailbag episode of the Locked on Orioles podcast, answering your Orioles questions. And we get right into our fourth question of the day that comes from Mark on Twitter, who asks, why does Adley hit leadoff? And will we see Cedric Mullins back in that role in 2024? Well, the answer to why Adley hits leadoff is fairly simple. Adley finished this season with a 374 on base percentage. Among Orioles qualified hitters, that was far and away the best on-base percentage on the team. And a pretty simple way to construct a lineup is have your leadoff hitter be your best on-base guy because you're not really looking for as many home runs from your leadoff hitter. I mean, that's great. We've seen Kyle Schwarber give the Phillies a one nothing lead plenty of times. But in general, you want your top on-base guy at the top of the order and then your power guys behind him. 
Adley Rutschman is the Orioles' top on-base guy at 374. You want that leadoff guy to get on base, that is what Adley does. Now, if you take away the qualifiers and you just say every Oriole who played this year, he was second behind Aaron Hicks in on-base percentage. Hicks was at 381 in his time with the Orioles. But I think people would have raised some alarms if Hicks started hitting leadoff for the O's, although it wouldn't have been the worst move they could have made. But if you look at the rankings, right, even if you pull in everybody, Hicks at 381, number one, Adley at 374, number two, then you have a gigantic drop-off of almost 50 points of on-base percentage before you get Ryan Mountcastle and Ramon Arias tied at third with a 328 on-base percentage this year. If you're wondering why Adley's hitting leadoff, it's because you basically had three options to hit leadoff this year. Once Cedric Mullins started to get injured and struggle, and we'll get to that in a second, it was Adley Rutschman, it was Aaron Hicks, and it was Gunnar Henderson. Now, two of the three did it. We saw Austin Hayes do it a little bit against lefties. That probably wasn't the best part for him to be in the lineup. I don't think people would have been very happy with Aaron Hicks. You don't generally want him in the top third of your order the way he does produce. And they kind of split time between Henderson and Rutschman. And I think Rutschman's the better fit because Henderson is more of a run producer, more of a power guy. Rutschman is more of the on-base guy. I'd rather him have hit, have him hit before Henderson so Gunner can drive him in. I think Adley won, Gunner two was kind of the best way they did the lineup last year. So the question then goes to Cedric Mullins. When Cedric was thriving in 2021, he had the 30-30 season, he kind of looked like your prototypical leadoff hitter. He was a speedy guy. He could steal bases. He could bunt. He could hit for a little bit of power. And he was getting on base. Cedric Mullins had a 360 on base percentage back in 2021 in the All-Star season. That was great. Last year, Cedric Mullins had a 318 on base percentage. This year, Cedric Mullins had a 305 on base percentage. That is why Cedric Mullins is not hitting leadoff. You cannot put a guy at the top of the lineup with a 305 on base percentage. That is not going to work out if basically 70% of the time you're making it out to start the game. It's just not going to make you a good lineup. Now, if Cedric can get back to the 360 on base we saw in his magical 2021 season, he's got the other tools, right? The speed, the ability to get on, steal a base, to be the leadoff hitter. But until he does that, he's going to hit in the bottom third of the order. Now, he's going to play almost every day still because he's a very skilled and talented player that really helps the Orioles. But he's a bottom third of the order hitter right now. Now, Brandon Hyde did, at points this season, express some concern about Adley hitting leadoff. And actually, when he did move him out of the leadoff spot for a bit and put Gunner there, he said it was actually because he felt like Adley didn't have enough time during home games to get ready to hit leadoff because he would catch the top of the first inning in a home game, he'd come back in, and then with the new pitch clock rules, there's also less time in between innings. And Brandon Hyde felt like he didn't have enough time to come back into the dugout, chat with his pitcher about the first inning, get the catcher's gear off, get his batting gear on, and get himself loose and ready to hit in the bottom of the first. So what he did is move him back to the two-hole where he spent most of his time, allow mostly Gunner there to hit leadoff, and then Adley have time to get ready and hit second. It all makes sense. So if they're really concerned about that, I could see Adley hitting leadoff on the road maybe and hitting second at home. But again, if you want Cedric, he's going to have to get the on-base back up. Question number five comes from Buzz on Twitter who asks, what's going on with the lease? Pretty good and simple question there, Buzz. 
except there's nothing simple about it. Last big major update we had was at the Orioles clinchman's game in late September. They put it on the screen in between innings that they had agreed to a 30-year lease. Turns out the wording was not really the case. It was a memorandum of understanding between the stadium authority, I guess, and Westmore and John Angelos and whomever that they had the framework of a deal in place. But that document, not binding at all. So we sit here on November 14th, and we are about a month and a half away from the deadline. The lease expires on December 31st of this year. We are getting to the point where you might see another one or two year extension kind of put together in mid-December to plop the deadline on down to, let's say, December 31st of 2025, just to give the O's more time. And to me at this point, that seems most likely of what's going to happen here. I mean, I don't know why John Angelos and others are dragging their feet. I mean, uh, he's getting $600 million of taxpayer money to upgrade his stadium and the space around it. Like, what are you waiting for? All you got to do is sign that lease extension and you get $600 million. This is the easiest way anyone has ever gotten $600 million. Just sign it. You have the memorandum of understanding, just sign it then. I don't know what, and I mean, the state and the city apparently already gave the Orioles like another break on the rent they're paying on the land around the ballpark, including the warehouse. Like they gave them a huge break on that moving forward. It's another reason to just sign the lease. And I have a feeling at this point, they're not going to let it expire, right? Like that's not going to happen, at least not now. They're going to do some sort of extension. It could be just a one or two year extension to give them more time to negotiate. But at some point, like you got to just come to an agreement. That's the update right now. We're, we're just still waiting. Next question comes from Izzy via email who says, when will the signings and trades start to pick up steam this offseason? Izzy was mentioning in the email about how, you know, free agency opened five days after the World Series ended and a weekend now and really nothing has happened across the league. Well, it's a good question. And the GM meetings were last week. That's kind of the first time that the GMs all get together. And if you didn't hear about it, there was a little bit of a virus going around at the GM meetings. They actually had to end it early because like a good chunk of the people there got sick. So that probably put a little bit of a wrench into things that were happening. Mike Elias talked about how GM meetings are more about just feeling each other out, really getting started on the process of making moves, making signings, anything like that. Then, you know, the winter meetings is really when stuff starts to get going pretty much every year in the baseball offseason. Winter meetings this year are December 3rd through the 6th in Nashville. That's when you have all the GMs together, a bunch of managers together, a bunch of baseball media people. Everybody converges on the winter meetings, and you will get a lot of big trades and signings will usually break in those four days of the winter meeting. So that's really like the standalone time where a lot of stuff happens. Now, sometimes more than others, and stuff will still trickle out throughout the offseason. MLB is not like the NBA and the NFL where like as soon as free agency opens, you get, you know, the best 30 players all sign. It just doesn't happen in Major League Baseball because they have more of these benchmarks in the offseason. The winter meetings is probably the closest thing to that, but I will say there are still some like roadblocks stopping a lot of this stuff from happening. Now, for baseball too, it's such a tiered system of who can be signed that 
teams are kind of waiting for dominoes to fall, right? Like people, you know, the top echelon of teams might be going after Shohei Otani. And until someone signs Otani, they're putting all their effort there. And then finally, okay, Otani signed with the Dodgers. You know, now teams like the Mets and the Padres and whomever, all right, now we go to our next couple of options. Same thing with the pitching market, right? Like people waiting for maybe Blake Snell and Aaron Nola to sign. And once they do, like, all right, those teams got their guys, we can go get these guys underneath of them once they've set the market. That's kind of how it works. But also, there are a couple dates coming up this week that do factor into this. So Tuesday evening is the deadline to add prospects to your 40-man roster to protect them from the Rule 5 draft. That deadline is this evening, Tuesday the 14th. Now, there's a good chance because of how the prospects just kind of shake out for the Orioles this season. For the first time in a while, the Orioles actually may not add anyone to the 40-man roster, but other teams will, and that gives them another data point like, okay, how much space do we have on our 40-man to sign or trade for other guys? Because we need to clear up some space for these guys. And then the big one, really, is this Friday evening. This Friday evening, November 17th, is the non-tender deadline. Is the deadline for teams to non-tender arbitration-eligible players. What that means is when guys go to arbitration, you agree to a contract number for them for how much they get paid in the next year. Sometimes when teams feel that the number that a guy is going to make far outweighs what they actually want to pay him, they will just non-tender him, which means essentially you release him, he becomes a free agent early, and goes into the free agent pool. Some of the reason why you know the mid-level to smaller deals aren't done until after then is because after the non-tender deadline, a small group of extra free agents gets added to the pool. And I think a lot of teams wait for those guys because some years there are some surprise non-tenders that are actually like impact players who could help teams, and they wait for that full free agent picture to be really set after Friday evening, then maybe next week you will start to see some moves being made, but really wait till the winter meetings for things to really pick up. It's just how it goes in the baseball offseason. But we've got three more questions to get to to finish off the pod. Coming up next, we will talk a little bit about Heston Kerstad, a little bit about Orioles who could regress and improve next year, and a little bit about baseball ballpark food. So we're back here on a mailbag episode. Got three more questions from you, the listeners, to get to here. And our first, or our next question, I should say, comes from Tony on Twitter who asks, do you think the Orioles will find a way to play Heston Kerstad at first base? Now, talked about this question a little bit earlier this offseason on some different episodes, but really good to kind of get to it here because it is a good question, right? He is a natural outfielder, been playing a lot of left and right field in the Orioles system, but they worked him out a lot at first base last season in the minors. And when he got to the big leagues, he played a couple of innings in the outfield, but was mostly DH pinch hitter in the little bit of time he got for the Orioles in September. Remember, he was on the playoff roster, but did not appear in any of the three games in the ALDS. I think for next year, it's going to be tough for Heston Kerstad to find a lot of places to play in the field, right? Like at first base, the O's are going to have Ryan Mountcastle and Ryan O'Hearn, a righty and a lefty back on that team. And in the outfield, we don't quite know who's going to be back, but most likely you're going to see Hayes, Mullen, Santander, and, and Colton Kowser in that outfield, along with, you know, whoever, Sam Hilliard, maybe Aaron Hicks back, you know, maybe Ryan McKenna still in the mix. There's a lot of different guys who could be in that outfield mix. And I just think for Heston Kerstad, it's going to be like a lot of, you know, DH time, some corner outfield, and maybe a little first base 
if Ryan O'Hearn cannot bottle that magic from 2023 and continue it in 24. If O'Hearn struggles, Kerstad comes up and just takes that spot on the roster that he had. If O'Hearn looks good, Kerstad might start the year in AAA next year and then come back up at some point. But I will say, in 2025, I think that's when we see like the full arrival of Heston Kerstad and playing a lot. Because most likely, Anthony Santander is not here in 2025. He's a free agent after next year. And probably Ryan O'Hearn is not here. He's also a free agent after next year. And so that clears up a lot more for kind of a DH right field first base kind of situation for Heston Kerstad. So I think eventually down the line, yes. But I don't see a lot of innings for him there next year. Unless either Mountcastle suffers with a vertigo or struggles again. Or O'Hearn just really can't repeat what he did in 2023. Next question comes from Larry on Twitter, who asks, which Orioles will improve the most in 2024, and which Orioles could regress the most next season? Now, this is kind of a longer topic that we'll probably get into later in the offseason, but I wanted to pick one guy on each side. Pick one guy to really improve, one guy to really regress based on their performance and their numbers and the underlying statistics from 2023. For the regression, my big regression candidate last offseason was CNL Perez. Perez had a sub-2 ERA in 2022. A lot of the peripherals did not look good, and I thought this could be a disaster. CNL Perez was a disaster for the first half of the season, but credit to him, he continued to tinker with what he did, and Perez came one of the, became one of the Orioles' best relievers really the final two months of the season. So credit to him, but... It was kind of a correct pick because for four months, Cienel Perez was not good for the Orioles and it was nowhere close to the 2022 version of him. I'm going to go with a reliever again, and I'm going to say Mike Bauman. Now, I understand that Bauman had already started to regress during the 2023 season. Like down the stretch, Bauman was nowhere close to his first half self. And if you remember, Bauman spent the last couple of weeks of the season in AAA and then was left off the postseason roster. And there were some mumblings, oh, it should have been Bauman over Brian Baker or whatever. You know, but the way Bauman was pitching, it wasn't really any better than Brian Baker at that point. And so I, I kind of agreed with the Bauman off the roster. Like, he was not good down the stretch. But overall, like, he, he still did post a 3.76 ERA, still has solid stuff, and he was still really good in the first half last year for the Orioles. I just don't see it at all. Next year, despite a 3.76 ERA, his expected ERA per Statcast was 5.37 last year. That's based off like the quality of contact and the quality of pitches that he throws. That was the biggest hike of expected ERA over regular ERA for any Orioles pitcher last year. And you look at his pitches; like opponents hit 225 against his fastball, but the expected batting average was 266. It didn't have good command. The pitch, despite it being you know 97, 98 plus at times, has bad peripherals. Doesn't have a lot of good spin on it. The curveball is good; I'll give him that. But that slider just doesn't seem to be working at times. I don't know. It's just the command was way off for Bauman. And the issue with him is it's not a lot of walks. He misses in the middle of the zone and gives up a lot of hard contact, a lot of extra base hits. I just think we'll see a point next year where Mike Bauman might spend most of the year in AAA and just be more of a, an up-down guy when they need him and not exactly someone who they're counting on in the Orioles' bullpen. But on the improvement side, this might be kind of a cop-out answer because this guy is an all-star and he's already pretty good. But I think a guy who got pretty unlucky this year was Adley Rutschman. And I think improvements coming next year where he's going to be better than he was in either 
of his first two seasons in the big leagues. Adley hit 277 with an expected batting average of 290. Adley slugged 435. You know, his power numbers were a little down this year, but had an expected slugging percentage of 466. He got a little unlucky, and his batted ball quality is good. He has an incredible approach at the plate. I think the offensive numbers are going to seriously break out for Adley Rutschman next year. And if he keeps up the defense and the leadership, it's going to be an MVP level season for Adley Rutschman in 2024. And the final question of the day comes from Joe on Twitter, who's always asking kind of the, the good, more lighthearted questions to answer at the end of a mailbag episode. Joe asked, what is your go-to ballpark food? Like the thing that you would just get at any ballpark just to be safe. I would say for me, Italian sausage with peppers and onions. Pretty hard to mess up. Very good at most ballparks. Solid contributor. Some people would say hot dogs. I go for a little bit more than that. You know, like more than chicken tenders, more than a hot dog. You get an Italian sausage with peppers and onions. I'm happy with that at pretty much any ballpark. It's good at Oriole Park as well. That's like the one piece of food that didn't disappoint me sometimes when I got it this year at Oriole Park. It was a very disappointing year for food at the ballpark. But... The sausage station that's like right inside the concourse when you enter on Utah Street, that first station right there, right before you get to the Rita's, like, that's where I'm going. Not every game, because I went to 20 games, and that's a lot, but probably half the games. That's what I went and got for food this season. That's the go-to for me at Oriole Park. But I want to hear from you in the comments. What is your go-to ballpark food at Oriole Park? Like, what, when you go to the game, do you know, like, hey, I might try something new, might get this, might get that, but when you just know I need the staple, I need what I know is going to be good and what I'm going to enjoy, tell me in the comments, what is that food at Oriole Park? But that'll do it for today's mailbag episode. Thank you so much, all of you, for sending in your questions. Continue to send them in throughout the offseason. We'll be doing mailbags every single week. Tomorrow we are back. We'll have some news to talk about or potentially some lack of news. As I mentioned, this evening is the deadline to protect protect prospects on the 40-man roster from the Rule 5 draft. But the big names that would have needed to be protected, Gunnar Henderson, Heston Kerstad, Jordan Westberg at this point, they're all already on the big league roster, so you don't need to worry about them. It's a lot of, like, interesting prospect guys, but there's a chance none of them get protected. So whether they add some or don't add any, I'll break down who it was or who it wasn't and why the Orioles made those decisions on tomorrow's episode, plus some other O's news and notes as well. But until then, I'm Connor Newcomb, and this has been the Locked On Orioles podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.